Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we love you because you have heard our voices and our pleas for mercy. Lord, you are gracious, merciful, and righteous. You have delivered our souls from death, our eyes from tears, our feet from stumbling. Let us walk humbly before you in the land of the living. Lord, we know it is better to take refuge in you than to trust in man. We know it is better to take refuge in you, Lord, than to trust in people in power. Help us to trust in you and you alone this week. For our members struggling with health issues right now, Lord, we pray that you would be working in them to bring physical healing and that they would feel your love in tangible ways this week. Bring hope and comfort to them like only you can, Lord. We pray for our brother Marcel and the church in Burkina Faso who are enduring continuing persecution from terrorist groups. We ask Yahweh by your Holy Spirit that you would give our brothers and sisters courage to live in obedience to you. Let them see that you are steadfast and faithful so that they may be steadfast and faithful to you. Protect Marcel as he works with pastors to plant churches in areas that are controlled by the enemy. We pray for all of the children under his care through this partnership with Compassion International. May they see your goodness and generosity, Father, and worship you with joy and hope. May you continue to meet their physical needs and protect them from the pandemic. Jesus, as you contemplated the cost to bring peace between mankind and yourself on the cross, you sought your Father through prayer. May we be a church of prayer. May we earnestly seek you and find you in our prayers this week. Father, give us perseverance to continue to lay our burdens at your feet and to give you all of the honor and glory and praise you are due. In a world fraught with confusion and discord right now, we echo the words of your servant, St. Francis. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let us give thanks to you, O Lord, for you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, with that, why don't you open up to Mark 14, and we're going to be in verse 26. When you guys think of Jesus uh, coming to earth in human form, what do you picture? I think each of us have a different picture in our head. Do you picture the stoic actor in some of the Jesus movies who never seems to show emotion? He's got those sunken eyes, and he floats across the ground and seems to be completely fatalistic when it comes to his death. Is that what you picture? Or maybe you picture Jesus as being one who never shows weakness whatsoever. He's just this strong rock. After all, he is God in the flesh. Why would he show any kind of weakness, right? That's how many people sometimes picture him. And you may be able to hold on to these ideas of Jesus in various portions of the Gospels, but then you come to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in this story that we're going to look at today that we are confronted 
with a side of Jesus that many people like to push aside and forget. It's the side of Jesus that shows the fact that he voluntarily surrendered his godliness, as it says in Philippians 2. And even though he was still 100% God incarnate, 100% deity, he was also 100% human. And the text we're about to read is one of the most awe-inspiring portions of the gospel because, as I hope to show you this morning, it is actually here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Christ shows his ultimate obedience to the Father. The cross simply becomes the follow-through of that obedience. I think we often don't think of it that way. It's here in this garden, as Jesus wrestles with temptation, that we see Jesus' humanity in unabashed clarity. And so it's an amazing, awesome section with respect to displaying for us as human disciples of Jesus how within our own human weakness we can tap into the power of the Godhead and learn a simple yet profound truth. And that truth is what we've entitled the sermon this morning. Persistence in prayer leads to perseverance in temptation. Persistence in prayer leads to perseverance in temptation. Now, If you're like me, you might have the thought enter your head right now, oh great, another teaching about prayer, right? But folks, this is one of those things that I think we often skip over, especially in our postmodern world where many people believe that prayer is worthless. So let's try and clear our minds and focus in on what the text has to tell us today. And let's join up with Jesus and his disciples and see what they learned today in this text before us. They're finishing off the Passover meal that we looked at last week, and uh, we start to see what's next in the passion of the Christ. So let's go ahead and look there now. Join me there in Mark 14, 26, and we'll go ahead and read the text. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Mark is right in the center of the account of the Passion Week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. In the larger context of this passage, Mark is using a great deal of comparison and contrasting. 
to prepare the listener, us, and the original listeners, to answer the ultimate question of the Gospel of Mark, which is, who do you say that Jesus is? In verses 1 through 2, we saw the religious leaders. They were hateful and murderous, trying to figure out how to arrest Jesus. In verses 3 through 9, we saw the response of the woman who, in just unbelievable love, came because she realized that she was forgiven much and she anointed Jesus' head and his feet. In verses 10 through 11, we're given the prophecy of the betrayal of Jesus, contrasted with the narrative of the upper room and the Passover and the showing of faithfulness and fellowship and love that's to accompany those that are truly Jesus' disciples. And now we have another prophecy before us. This time, it's Peter's denial of Christ and really the denial by all the disciples because they will all abandon him. But this is in sharp, poignant contrast to something else. In contrast to their faith that does not persevere but flees at the moment of temptation and trial, Mark shows us Jesus. In the full pain of his humanity, in fullness of suffering, fullness of trial, he perseveres in the midst of the most horrific temptation and trial that any human could undergo. So let's look at these contrasts and learn from our Lord what he can show us. First, we see this contrast. Mark contrasts Christ's reliance on the Father with the disciples' reliance upon themselves. Christ's reliance on the Father versus the disciples' reliance upon themselves. I love the details that Mark includes in this. Even though he speeds through a lot of his narrative accounts, he gives little hyperlinks for us to think about and go back to and relate to. And from a historical perspective, we look at this and see that he first notes that they sung a hymn. In later Passover Seder meal tradition, it was from one of the psalms that you would sing at the end of the the Passover meal, specifically Psalms 114 through 118. One of those psalms or all of those psalms would be sung. These are what are called the Egyptian Hallel songs. This was meant, like the Passover meal, to turn the minds of those who were attending back to the Exodus and the need that Israel had for complete reliance upon God. As Israel needed him in the midst of the wilderness to fight off Pharaoh's armies, to provide, to give the law, complete reliance upon God. Why don't we turn to one of those right now? Let's turn to Psalm 18. Uh, 118, excuse me, and we're going to take a quick look at that just to kind of see what was in their minds possibly. This isn't a hill to die on as far as the, the idea that they absolutely sang Psalm 118 at the end of this, but they were most likely singing from one of the related psalms here. And let's just take a look, for example, at Psalm 118 and see this idea uh, because a, a number of commentators agree that this might, might be the, the psalm they sang from. And we're going to look at it and see this theme over and over again of complete reliance upon the Lord. Take a look there. Just start in verse 5, for example. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, on Yahweh. Yahweh answered me and set me free. He's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Notice this transcendence above human opinion, human threat, human fear. Yahweh is on my side. The Lord is on my side. As my helper, I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Amen? Can you do me a favor? Can you bookmark this? And when you go to vote, can you reread those last two verses? Still vote your conscience, but reread those last two verses. Let the Lord inform your voting. 
It is better to trust in Yahweh than to trust in any kind of politician. Look then at verse 14. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of Yahweh. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. Who does the opening? God himself. And give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Remember Jesus saying that he is the gate. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Remember that the word in Hebrew for salvation is Yeshua. You have become my Jesus. You have become my Yeshua. It's the very same name that the Lord uses to name his son, Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Guys, this is talking about the day of crucifixion, right? That's the day the Lord has made and be, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Do you notice the theme here? It's that the Lord is the one in whom we trust. He is the one who does everything. He accomplishes salvation. Our life is simply response to that. He gives us his righteousness. It's nothing of man. And because of this, we give praise. We give thanksgiving. We seek him. We lean on him. We cry out to him. We call to him in our distress. And this background goes to show how deeply the poor disciples just were not getting it. These strong Jewish men who knew Jewish scripture, who sat in the presence of their perfect rabbi, they just weren't getting it. And I wonder how many of us can relate to that. Well, from there, the disciples left with Jesus, and you can go back to, to Mark there with me. The disciples left with Jesus sometime after midnight. It's late, probably the earliest part of the morning. Now, this is odd because the Levitical law and Pharisaic tradition stated that you don't leave your home after the Passover. You stay. Uh, for example, Exodus 12, 22, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. This is right in line with the idea of the Passover. And what we can possibly gather here and what church tradition corroborates is that Jesus and his disciples had only rented that upper room for that evening meal and then they had to leave. And it's church tradition that the disciples, who are not from Jerusalem, they had to find a place to stay. So basically what they did is they went and slept in a cave. And that cave was located in this olive grove known as Gethsemane. And the story intimates this as well. For later, we're going to see at the uh, house of the high priest that there are servants warming themselves by the fire, right? What does that tell us about the warmth of the air? It's probably pretty cool. And yet, in the midst of the story that we're about to read, we'll read next week, there's one who's in the middle of this brouhaha of Jesus getting arrested, a young man, and he flees wearing only his linen uh, undergarment, okay? Which means he was probably sleeping nearby to where Jesus was. If he was sleeping outside, he'd be more, wearing more than a linen, uh, linen undergarment, so he was most likely sleeping in the cave. And this helps us paint the picture in our mind's eye. Before they arrive at Gethsemane, however, Jesus tells them of their impending desertion, that they're going to leave him. And to do so, he uses a line from Zechariah 13.7, a very messianic section of scripture. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
He quotes from this uh, and, and basically continues to talk in these messianic terms about himself, even stating that he will be resurrected and go before them. Guys, if you have a friend who's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to die and then resurrect again, you either think he's nuts or you think he's telling the real deal. You don't just kind of walk in this apathetic cloud, but that seems to be what's going on with the disciples. Notice then Peter's response, moving past all the messianic statements, he arrogantly and pridefully says, even though everybody else falls away, I will not. Guys, how many times have you heard this from brothers and sisters in Christ who, yeah, I know that person had that issue. I know that person struggled with that sin, but never me, right? How many times have you heard this? As a pastor, I've heard this dozens, if not hundreds of times. Never me. I won't be the unfaithful one. I won't be the one who falls to that temptation. I won't be the one who does X, Y, or Z. Jesus prophesies that by the early morning, by the second watch, Peter will have denied his Lord and rabbi three times. Less than 12 hours later, he will have denied him. But again, Peter pridefully and defensively states, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. In other words, that's all well and good, Jesus, but what you're saying eh, doesn't apply to me. Is this speaking of Peter's humility or his pride? Brothers and sisters, can I repeat to you what I've said many times, that the heart of a disciple is very easily spotted. It is one who is humble, one who views themselves rightly. It's not a fake dismissal of self as unimportant. It is a correct view of self as God sees us and as God sees others. Part of having the correct view is molding our understanding of self into what God sees and what he speaks. And part of our intense need to be immersed in the Word of God as Scripture commands us is so we can let the Holy Spirit constantly wash over us with the balanced truth of who we are. And guys, this is going to be on repeat for me until the day I die because often when people come to argue things and they come into my office, they sit down and guess what they don't have with them? The Bible. But they argue from personal opinion. That is not truth. The Word of God is truth. And our job as disciples is to mold our will into His. Otherwise, we're still operating in the image of our first mother and father who decided on their own what was best. And so we have to look and see the balance of who we are in Scripture. One of my favorite passages that helps us understand this is from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, all those guys, right? <laughs> you guys ever read? Oh, all, all those guys. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You want identity, brothers and sisters? There's your identity. A sinner saved by grace. We see in Peter the need to admit that we can never trust in our own righteousness, our own strength. How sad when his denial comes to pass later that night. He will indeed fight on behalf of Jesus, but that zeal, that surge of passion will quickly fall away as fear and shame kick in. Well, from there, we see that they arrive at Gethsemane, which that word, that name, means olive press. And so one can assume that there was indeed a grove of olives, much like there is there today. And there is a nearby cave where the farmers most likely kept the press or other equipment. And here are some pictures of the area, just so you can kind of get it in your mind's eye. 
There in the forefront, you see this uh, church. It's called the Church of All Nations. Behind it, the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox churches, uh, because we're so good in Christianity at staying unified. Ha <laughs> ha. That was a joke, by the way. Um, and then uh, to the left there, I think that's left, yeah. To the left, you see the tradition, uh, traditional garden of Gethsemane. And then even further left, you see the Gethsemane Grotto or the cave. Um, and so that cave, that, uh, the, the, or the olive trees there, would look like this. Beautiful olive grove. I've walked through there. It's a wonderful place to contemplate what Christ did for us. And then from there, you'd see a, right now in 2020, you'd see a pathway into the door that would lead you into the grotto, the cave that is now a church. And that's most likely where the disciples were sleeping. So it was most likely in this cave that the larger party of the disciples were hanging out and sleeping, and Jesus said, hang here and pray, but they probably most likely fell asleep. It may have even been a place that was known and previously used by the disciples because Judas knew right where to go. And technically, this area still fell within the city boundaries so they could abide by the Passover law to stay within the city limits on the evening of Passover. The three closest friends of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, probably seeing his distress, came to him and walked out of the cave with him to a spot in the garden. And Jesus there asked them to stop and pray with him. But under so much stress, Jesus wanders on further into the garden and he falls on his face. Now, this is interesting because the typical uh, uh, posture of prayer for the Jews in Jesus' day, and even still today, is to stand with eyes towards heaven and arms outstretched to God. And so for Jesus to fall on his face showed his need to rely upon the Father by the Spirit. We then see the three denials of Peter paralleled here uh, in the prophecy with the three prayers of Jesus cast at the feet of the Father. This is part of the contrasting. Three denials versus three cries to the Father in prayer. And dear brothers and sisters, if God incarnate, the very Son of God that comes down from heaven, who's seen the Father's face, needed to rely upon the Father to this level in his earthly life, how much more do you and I need to rely upon the Father? To what extent, dear friends, is your walk with Christ one that is characterized by constant reliance upon the will of the Father, upon the mind of the Father? upon the grace of the Son and upon the power of the Holy Spirit? How much is you walking under your own power and strength versus you relying upon God? I had a friend one time tell me the easy way to check is, what's the first thing you do in the morning? And at the time, I was working in retail, and retail affected how sales numbers went. And I said, well, the first thing I do is I wake up in the morning, I check the weather, right? And weather affects retail sales. And he was like, oh, you check weather, huh? What is that about? Well, that's going to help me determine how I live out the day, right? What, what happens? Because I was in strategic planning and I, what I'm going to do for the day. He was like, what if you actually check the Bible first? <laughs> I was like, nice Jesus juke. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, I should probably do that. I should probably look to the Bible and to God's word and in prayer to figure out what's going to determine my day rather than this little phone I have, Right? Friends, this is why prayer is to be a constant part of our life, crying out to God in petition and thanksgiving and lament. This is why the study and memorization of God's word is so important. How can we ever expect to know the mind of God and to submit our will to his own if we simply rely upon our own insight, feelings, or logic? If we don't know the word of God intimately, how on earth are we ever going to move our will to connect with his? This is also why counsel of God's people is so helpful and necessary that a multitude of counselors, 
all showing and displaying the Spirit of God in their actions in life would lead us to God's will and God's word. Friends, do you look to these avenues to rely upon the grace and wisdom of God? And if not, what's your plan to start embracing these more regularly? Mark paints clearly here Christ's reliance upon the Father in contrast with the disciples' reliance upon themselves. Well, next, what we see is Mark's contrast of the apathy of the disciples with the passion of the Christ. The apathy of the disciples with the passion of the Christ. On the one hand, we can empathize with the disciples, can't we? It was late at night, long meal, four glasses of wine, my goodness, right? That's the Passover meal. They were probably a little bit tired. And they're sleeping in a cave. I don't know if you've ever slept in a cave, but if it's nice and warm in there, right? It's dark, you're going to go to sleep fast. I see some of you falling asleep in here when the lights are a little bit low, right? I can't even imagine a cave. But there are three other items that work against them. First, this is no ordinary night. Mark has made clear that Jesus has voiced his knowledge that his death was coming, and, and it was coming soon at multiple places along the Passion Week and even in this evening. They just came from the Passover meal in which Jesus pointed them to the Exodus and talked about his pouring out of his life as the Passover lamb, uh, pointing them to the new covenant that had been anticipated since Jeremiah and Ezekiel. On the way to the garden, Jesus made clear to them, especially Peter, that they would be scattered that very night. You'd think that they would be alarmed and kind of up and ready and on guard. And third, notice that Jesus did not suggest that they come and pray with him. He commanded it, come and pray with me. And yet, even with all that, the disciples can't seem to stay awake for even one hour of prayer. And we can guess that they stayed awake for some of it because Peter was able to later relate the very prayer he overheard Jesus saying to Mark. And Peter's fingerprints are all over this story. But beyond that, beyond his first-person account, they continued to give in to temptation to sleep. There was probably far more that Jesus said than his opening line of prayer, and yet it wasn't heard because they were asleep. In Scripture, we see this same problem over and over again. Satan comes after those who are lethargic and half-hearted in their faith. He's pictured as a lion. What does a lion do to a group of gazelles? He goes after the one that's lethargic, that's kind of walking a little bit slower in the back of the pack, those who are apathetic in the Christian terms. In the Gospel according to Luke, uh, Jesus paints this portion of the story with Jesus giving Peter full understanding that Satan is coming after him. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I don't know about you guys, but if somebody called me up and said, hey, so-and-so is coming after you and he's got his weapons loaded, just FYI, he might be banging down your door. I don't know that I'd go and take a nice little nap at that point. I'd probably be at the door ready to fight with my hand on 911, Right? What am I going to do? I'd be on guard. But Peter doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to phase him. And so Peter will know well of this when he speaks to the church later in 1 Peter 5, 7 through 8. And he says, you need to cast all your anxieties on Christ because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour you can almost hear the story of Gethsemane bleeding through into Peter's call to the church. This is not new at this point in Scripture. It's come from the very beginning of the existence of sin and the evil one in the realm of humanity. God has reminded us over and over and over in his word that apathy will not suffice in the Christian walk. 
It will not suffice in the fight against the kingdom of darkness. Remember, right there at the beginning in Genesis 4, 6 through 7, Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Friends, there is never a moment, never a second, never a millisecond of your life as disciples of Jesus where this is not true, where sin is not crouching at your door ready to put you in a hold or a headlock or break you. Apathy will not suffice as disciples. If you're not actively and offensively battling to align your will with the Lord's at every second of every day, I guarantee you, with all the backing of Scripture, that your sin will overcome you. It may not overcome you in a way that wrecks your temporal life. It might. But it will overcome you in a way that blinds you so that you drift off into spiritual obscurity and find yourself years on from the fight, wondering when and how your faith became so fruitless and empty. I'll remind you the quote from J.C. Ryle that I read from his book, Holiness, Uh, at the member meeting yesterday. Quote, a true Christian is one who is not only peace of conscience, but war within. He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. End quote. To be a Christian, brothers and sisters, is to engage in warfare against your flesh and the desire that you have to go the easy route, to give in to temptation, to follow your own will, to make Christianity a consumeristic sport, and to not follow the Lord's will. Far too many churches and too many Christians have contorted true Christianity into a toothless perversion of the real thing just because it is easier and it calls them to sacrifice less. My heart breaks every time I sit with a Christian who looks at me with tears in their eyes and says, boy, this following Jesus thing is hard. And you know what I say to them? What did you expect? Hans, that's not very empathetic. No, it's also not very loving to say, yeah, I know. Count the cost, dear friends. To follow Jesus is to engage in a war. It's not to sit and be a consumer. Let's wage warfare against that slow but sure fade. The apathy of the disciples is clear, which makes the passion of Christ stand out so boldly. In verse 33, it says that Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. These words imply a level of anguish that his disciples could see on his face. This is what Luke 22, 43 through 44 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This gives us an understanding of his great reliance upon the power of the Father to strengthen him. And what Jesus is experiencing here is called hematridosis, It's an actual condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture due to stress and exude blood instead of sweat. In verse 34, Jesus relates to the three that his soul is very sorrowful even to death. The Greek words used here convey a deep level of anguish. And the NIV says it this way, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus wasn't being a drama queen here. He was saying, I may literally die from stress and sorrow. And what was causing this intense level of sorrow? It could have been his anticipation of the physical pain that he was about to endure, but I think it was something far more complex. 
The phrase that's used to describe this entire week, the passion of the Christ, comes from a Latin word, passio, which means suffering, the suffering of the Christ. Because you see, here in the garden, Jesus is undergoing a temptation and suffering unlike anything you or I could ever endure. Notice that he warns the disciples to watch and pray to fight temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But you see, Jesus had already been tempted in the fashion you and I are constantly tempted. He was tempted that way back in Mark chapter 1, and he had overcome. Jesus is the spotless lamb, the sinless sacrifice. And he's also the incarnation of God, who James says can never be tempted. This is James 1.13. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So if he cannot experience temptation to flee from cowardice, what is he tempted to do here? Well, we get a glimpse in his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If possible, remove this cup from me. The cup to which he referred was the cup of God's wrath about to be poured out upon the sacrifice of the cross. Christ was wrestling with the burden of taking on your sin and mine and the sin of all the cosmos that had been and would be leveled at the righteous creator God. What he was tempted to do was to stay away from attaching so heavily to sinners who were rebels against his father. Can you imagine? He is the most ultimately loving and united son to a father that could ever be. And his father is asking him to attach to his enemies and take on their sin against the father as a sacrifice. Can you believe that temptation? And in the midst of that, he's saying, no, I don't want to. Not because of disobedience, but because he wants to so align with the Father. But the Father is saying, no, to love me is to do this sacrifice. And he'd fled and refused, if he had fled and refused that cup, it would not have been unjust. If he had said, I just am not going to do this, God the Father wouldn't have said, okay, well, you know, you really deserved it, son. It would have been just for you and I to take on the burden of sin upon ourselves and to be divided and separated from God the Father for all eternity. And yet, out of his abounding and steadfast love for us, but primarily for the Father and his obedience to the Father, Christ took on that sin. He became the sin of all mankind. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was the substitute that died in our place so that we might be seen as righteous in the eyes of God the Father. And so doing, he took on the wrath of the Godhead and the division from the Godhead from which he had only ever known intimate unity. And on the cross, Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? It was so painful and such a weighty burden to identify with sinners that Luke says again in 2243 that Jesus probably would have died except for the fact that an angel from heaven came to strengthen him. He would have died because of the absolute sorrow while the disciples acted in apathy towards their Lord who had laid down his life for them, their Lord acted in passionate, sacrificial love towards the very disciples who were apathetic towards him and really all of humanity who would flee from him, who would fight against him, 
betray him and crucify him. And so, dear church, when we sing the words, is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? Our adamant response should be a cry with one voice that says, he is. He absolutely is. He took on a burden we could never hope to bear that would destroy us for eternity. Is he worthy? He is. The apathy of the disciples provides a perfectly contrasting backdrop to the passion of Christ to die for the sins of the world. And if you are here today or watching online, well, I guess 9 o'clock we're not watching. Those notes will help me for the 11 o'clock. But if you're here today sitting amongst us and you've never completely given over your life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is pressing upon you an understanding of the amazing love of Christ that he has died for your sins and is calling you into relationship with himself, that he wants your whole life, not just part of it, not just that prayer you said at summer camp back when you were in sixth grade. He wants all of your life right now. And if that is true for you and you want to give it to him, you can cry out to him right where you sit. You can say, Lord, I want you to be my savior and king. And I would love to pray with you after service. But for those of you who are already following Jesus, for those of us who are already disciples, let's look at one last piece this morning. Third, Mark contrasts the disciples' fickleness with the persevering, persistent prayer of Jesus. The disciples' fickleness versus the persevering, persistent prayer of Jesus. We've seen the humanity of Christ as he has borne the weight of our sin and the sin of the whole world on his shoulders. It's in this moment in Gethsemane that we truly see the idea of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 that says clearly that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that he is a one who is acquainted with grief and a man of sorrows, that he was crushed for our iniquities. We often think that obedience came at the cross. It actually came in the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross was merely the natural outflow. One commentator, J.R. Edwards, says this. It's a beautiful quote. Gethsemane is the prelude to Calvary, for in a valley beneath the city, Jesus allows his soul to be crucified. On a hill above the city, he relinquishes his body. How did he persevere through this level of temptation, this level of suffering? Mark contrasts, uh, Mark's contrasts so far show us how he's done it. He uses the disciples' fickleness and the shallow faithfulness that is fleeing at the first sign of trouble to brightly display the persevering, persistent prayer of Jesus. And it's in this prayer that's so reliant upon the Father that Jesus is able to withstand a greater temptation than any of us could ever understand. When I witness how prayer is used in the church, it often seems to focus, especially in the Christian church, on asking for what we want. This is natural. It's part of our development as humans. I see it in our kids in this church, and it's beautiful when it's from them, from their heart of innocence. But there's a point at which we as adults need to mature out of that and realize that often that plays over into times of trial and suffering that happens in a way in which we bargain with God in order to get out of whatever's painful. And he becomes our genie in a lamp rather than our Father God and our Lord. We use, it, we use prayer almost as a defensive tool when the war is already halfway over. 
But friends, prayer is so much more than that. It's an offensive weapon that God has given us to be used regularly to keep us in connection with the Father by His Spirit, to praise the Son, and because of the Spirit's intimacy, to build in perseverance to holiness in our lives. You see, prayer is not primarily for us to move God's heart or hand so that He can be aligned with our will, but for us to enter into the presence of the Lord by His Spirit so that we might wrestle with the truth of God's will and what it means fully to submit to it. It's for us to turn our will to his. Notice that Jesus does do petition, if possible, take this cup from me. But notice, more importantly, he shows submission immediately. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the difference between the last Adam and the first Adam. Also notice that this is not a prayer lacking in emotion. It's typical in Jewish prayers to have a tone of loud complaint and directness with God. He calls the father Abba, indicating a closeness, and then he pours out his heart just like a child in distress pours out their heart to their earthly father. Friends, if you see me during the week when I'm dealing with pastoral ramifications of sin in our church and brokenness in our church, you'd think there was a crazy man in my office because half the time I'm on my face or on my knees yelling at God, God, please, for your sake, intervene. Where are you? It's a loud lament. It's not a, hey, if, if you got nothing else going on, why don't you jump in? It's not out of disrespect. It's, it's crying to God as a child would a father because that's what he wants to do. Friends, now is a perfect time in your lives to practice lament. A perfect time. Parents, teach your children, tr- children to cry out to God, not to just sit in their precious moments, but to cry out. In all of this, Jesus is showing he's 100% reliant upon God. He's bearing his soul not to twist the Father's will to his own, but so that his will in his flesh might be aligned with the Father's. And in this example, dear friends, three things happen, and you can write these down, three things. First, in persistent prayer, we're greatly sanctified and made holy. In persistent prayer, we're greatly sanctified and made holy. Another J.C. Ryle quote, he says this, praying and sinning, will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke out prayer. Friend, if you desire holiness in your life, you will make prayer a priority. Secondly, not only does prayer give us great sanctification and make us holy, prayer aligns our hearts with God's. It allows us to continue being sacrificially loving to those from whom we might feel abandonment or betrayal. It allows us to transcend above the opinions of people and to choose with integrity and character what God wants, regardless of what people think of you. This is literally what's occurring here. All the surrounding verses are statements of people who hate Jesus for what he teaches or are abandoning him or betraying him. And I would want to skip this assignment too. But it is in his prayer that he again aligns his heart with the Father and feels the pain of it, but yet transcends to do the Father's will. And this may seem pertinent for many of you right now. As you feel isolated and abandoned, you want to pull away from the Lord and from his people. 
prayer will lead you to a place where you pour out instead of sit in isolation. Third, in persistent prayer, we are invigorated with perseverance. We are invigorated with perseverance. Prayer can be viewed as a preemptive alignment of our will with God's will for things that our flesh will want to do or times that our flesh will do want to do something else. It's preemptive work. Before Saturday, our, our congregational meeting, I was putting together the slides. I was sitting back there where Jeanette was. I had uh, the song playing that, that Aaron played, Is He Worthy? And I was literally blasting it as loud as it could go so that all the surrounding people could hear the song. And I was just praying, God, be in the midst of our congregational meeting tomorrow. I was weeping over brokenness that we were going to have to bring before the body. I was literally sitting there screaming like a madman to God, begging for his intervention and saying, Lord, go before me so that when I speak and when the elders speak and when anyone speaks in that congregational meeting, that it would be glorifying to you and fruitful to our body. Do you pray beforehand? But so many of us dismiss prayer as unfruitful because we have used it to inflict our fleshly ideas and desires onto God's will, and he refuses those. And we think, well, prayer doesn't work because it didn't change God's hand. How often do you, dear friend, pray preemptively for the trials and sufferings to come before they come? How often, when you know you are entering a difficult season or a difficult conversation, do you pray about what you're going to say? How often before you post on social media do you pray, Lord, make sure that what I'm posting is of your will and not of my own? The persevering, persistent, and passionate prayer of Jesus rises out of the surrounding darkness of his followers' shallow, prideful, apathetic discipleship. And it shows brightly because Jesus shows us that persistence in prayer leads to perseverance amidst temptation. Brothers and sisters, the current trials we find ourselves in and moving through pale in comparison to the suffering of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as your pastor, I fear that for many of us in this room, we are taken by surprise when trials and temptations come. And what I desire for you is that you would engage in persistent, passionate, persevering prayer so that when true trials and tribulations come, when true temptation arises, you can meet it with the fullness of the power of Christ through his Spirit. Because when suffering comes, which it will... And when temptation comes, which it will, we want to be able to answer if he is worthy of our passionate response. Just as Jesus gave his passionate response for us, we want to cry out with an answer. He is, he is worthy to receive all blessing and honor and glory and praise in this moment, now and forevermore. And so here is our simple application, brothers and sisters. Do you pray? Do you pray? And if you pray, is it prioritized in your life? A time in which you press into God and meditation of his word to ask what his will might be and how to align your own will with his? Do you provide petitions while also begging God to overrule your desires if he sees fit? Do you beg for him to break your heart and break your will if it's against him? What's your prayer life like and does it need to grow? And if you're sitting here feeling more like the disciples than like Jesus in this area, you can join the club. I am the chiefest of sinners. We all have so much room to grow in our prayer life, but 
Just look forward slightly to the book of Acts 4.13. After the Spirit was poured out, these men who had such a lackluster showing in the garden, when they gave their lives to the risen Lord, encountered his love personally, and received the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, they became men that could not be moved. They became men that were resolved to worship and obey Christ. So much so that Acts 4.13 says, Now when the leaders had seen the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When we focus on the risen Christ, we will be empowered to persevere in persistent prayer as well as in the midst of trials and tribulation because persistent, persistence in prayer leads to perseverance amidst temptation. So let's focus on the risen Christ today.